what we have to assume is that people will um, continue to be distracted because they're trying to keep up with all the data sources in which they're getting their data all day. How do we reach them there? And, and, and how does communication need to show up there, right? Because I don't communicate on Twitter the way I communicate on Instagram, the way I communicate on LinkedIn. Why do the awareness programs, they look the exact same no matter where you interact with them. That's crazy. I'm George Comedy, and this is First Watch. Today's guest is Juliet Okafor, founder and CEO of Revolution Cyber. Juliet, or Jules as she's known to many, got her start in cybersecurity sales, but she got there via an interesting route through communications and law school. Along the way, she learned a lot about the value of communicating within organizations when it comes to building security cultures. So much so, in fact, that she's ventured out to start her own company, Revolution Cyber. This conversation was a blast, and Juliet certainly knows her stuff. So let's get into it. Jules Okafor, welcome to First Watch. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so you and I were going back and forth on LinkedIn uh, very recently, and you wrote something that made me sit up and pay attention. Um, and it was how you value the role of, quote, security culture on data breach prevention. So I, I want to start there because I think security culture gets a lot of lip service. I think it means a lot of different things to different people. So I wanted to give you space to elaborate on on how you see that and then we'll we'll get into it from there sure so you know I, i'd say that when i started to talk about security culture um i was almost always met with this idea that security culture and awareness are the same thing and mm. the the industry treats it that way because it sells more platforms however um my experience in, in building security culture in organization has shown it really is about all the ways in which security interacts with the rest of the business. So that's through technology, through processes and workflows, and also through the people. So it isn't just the education of people is what we found. It's also at every level, stakeholder management, executive conversations, board presentations, and then thinking about even the training, the skill set of the IT uh, and, and security professionals uh, within the org. So I believe security culture is much more, um, I like to say it's much more a feeling. You can tangibly feel if an organization has a strong culture. And then I also like to say that previously it's been, we've been able to see that security organizations that are actively investing in security culture show greater performance metrics more productivity, less help desk tickets, more quantitative and qualitative positive feedback from the rest of the organization. And you can also tell by their attrition, how many people stay, how many people leave in the organization, and then phishing. Very clear is an area where you're either doing phishing good or bad, and there is a way to tell how much that's impacted by security culture. Well, that's really interesting. Um, I want to dig in just a little bit there. So yeah, I think you're right insofar as it's often conflated with security awareness training, um, which sort of has a top-down approach, right? Like we're going to make everyone aware of, uh, of phishing. We're going to do simulations. We're going to educate them. We're going to make it a requirement, what have you. 
Um, but it does strike me as a more of a two-way street. You know, I was thinking recently about these MFA fatigue hacks where, you know, threat actors are just banging people's phones or crossing over into apps that maybe uh, are sort of unmanaged, like WhatsApp or something like that, to send these fake MFA authentication messages. And it struck me at the time that, you know, yes, it's normal to sort of, that's why it's called MFA fatigue. Like, I don't want any more of these reminders. <laughs> you just put in your credentials. But it it strikes me as like, maybe there's a failure there in how the organization has communicated how we will ask for your MFA, right? Like, it should be like, we're never going to approach you on WhatsApp. So if you're getting messages on WhatsApp, then like, that's wrong. <laughs> yes. Um, quite literally, culture and communications, they're interchangeable. It can't. It is. It is unfortunate that our industry sees videos as the way by which to teach people. But mm. we often learn better by storytelling and communicating one to one with people. So the better we do that, the better we see the culture reflected in security and across an organization. Yeah. So actually, communications. You you bring up a good point. So we we've started kind of. Uh, here and security culture, and we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that. But I do want to circle back and give you time to talk about your journey. So you have a master's in communications and a JD. So you're bringing a lot to the table. Um, so I want to start at the beginning and, and understand uh, how you got into tech. And, and if you can take us through that journey to the founding of your new company, Revolution Cyber. Wow. So one of the things that I always thought I would be, and I am, but I'm not practicing, is an attorney. So my, mm -hmm. my parents will tell anyone who will listen that at four years old, I declared that I was going to be a lawyer and they made me stick to it. So be careful, children, <laughs> <laughs> what you tell your parents. Um, but I, I've always had a knack for being able to explain myself and to make a case for. And if I think about the way in which I charted even my education, it was about, I have a degree in communications. I wanted to do that better. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, communications roles didn't pay enough to cover my loans. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I'm going to do sales instead, which also leverages communication for the purpose of influencing people to do things they may not ordinarily do. So it was a it was easy for me to do that. But then um, I also had these marketing degrees. So I have, I have communications, I have a, um, a master's in, in um, media and communications, and I've had a series of marketing roles. When everything, I've sold in every industry you can imagine um, from 2002 all the way through 2014. But when I, when I entered security, it was as an account executive. So I was... Um, selling uh, SIM implementations. Mm -hmm. uh, my first few months, actually, I was responsible for flying to Zambia with a team and implementing the SIM for the Bank of Zambia. Um, and I, within four months, replaced my boss. In doing so, what I, what I knew that I did better than my boss was that it didn't matter how long I had been in security. It was the fact that I could empathize with the CISOs who were buying our solutions and tell them the value of the SIM and what, what problems it would solve for them. And my entire career has been about that. So I, I moved quickly within a year to uh, from, from account executive to director to VP of sales. And then my boss would not promote me because his statement to me, um, and I was driving two hours back and forth to work 
um, at that time was, um, you've only been in the industry a year. No one will hire you uh, to be more than you are. Um, so actually, I was director then. And I, I thought to myself, that doesn't sound right. I'm pretty good. <laughs> I think, I, I think. <laughs> I mean, I was running a sales team in the Philippines. I was doing business with IBM in, Indi- in, in um, India. I was like, nah, even though, I mean, I'm, it's quick, but I, I think I can find somebody to hire me. So I remember it was like two o'clock in the morning. And I remember this job came up on LinkedIn. It said VP of sales. And it was my last company that I worked for, Fortress. And I was like, eh, was it hurt? Just apply. So I had applied to Fortress and had been chosen of about 200 other people. And I asked them, I said, why did you choose me over others? And they said, anybody who was crazy enough to leave their job to fly here and then to be able to pitch in 30 seconds. Oh, wow. Um, after listening to another pitch from a vendor, why, how they could sell it, um, we were going to hire. So that was my true impetus into security. Because I think before then, I was really selling a product. I think after that, mm-hmm. when you start working with a company that is has no name, no brand, you're on the product team building it from the start, you have to be very good at matching matching your solution to a problem, absolutely, right? And you've got to know that the problem already exists and know where to find the problem. So within a year of, of working with them, I sold a million dollars worth of stuff. And then uh, the next year, $25 million worth of stuff. And I was like, I'm pretty good at this. I should probably keep doing this. And so my company started as a result of like Fortress and what it did was very focused broadly on security operations for energy. But we've done this really interesting um, project where um, I, I sold a solution where our team would board three ships. Mm-hmm. We'd, we'd, you know, take a threat assessment of their ICS systems. And based on that, we had to build an entire global training program. And this organization has a hundred ships or more, actually, they're building more ships every day. But based on that, I, I sold it the first time. The program manager failed. We had to let them go. Sold it again. I, I, I delegated it again to another program manager. They failed. And so I had to keep our our um, our obligation up. And so I did. I went in. I did the reporting. I presented to their leadership wow. team. And I also built out the training. And that's how Revolution Cyber began, because mm-hmm. what I wanted to do was align real threats, starting with ICS, OT, IOT, with the way in which they communicated out to people. And we had to do it in a way where we couldn't impact productivity. The company had to keep going, had to keep growing, but what we offered had to be embedded into that, right? So on a ship, every every spoon has a revenue, has a cost assigned. Um, Every minute has a cost and a dollar amount. So we could not interfere with anything related to that organization's ability to get that ship from the port. And that's the kind of companies that I was looking to partner with moving forward. I knew that other companies had this same urgency where we had to tie security to the security, to to the overall security of the organization, but we had to be built into the way it already operated and we couldn't force it to change to us. We had to adopt and adapt to what they were already doing. Interesting. So you had this successful career in sales and at the risk of the obvious I guess I'm curious, why not stay in sales, right? Why branch out on your own? I guess this is a question about getting at that entrepreneurial bug. What was yes. that that impetus, that origin story there for like, you know what? <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna go from successful sales career to, you know, start from zero on my own thing. Money doesn't heal 
all wounds, right? Mm -hmm. So it is very painful to be in an entrepreneurial organization. And I was the first employee. And so there comes a time, it's like if you're an entrepreneur yourself, and actually you're quite entrepreneurial to be the first employee Mm -hmm. um, of an organization that's growing that, trying to grow that quickly. But for me, it was time that I went out on my own because my mindset has always been, why would I only make 10 to max 20% of something when I could make 100% of something? Mm -hmm. If I'm the one going out and selling it, I'm the one that's servicing it, I'm the one keeping up the relationship, then why not start my own company where I did the exact same thing? Mm -hmm. It would be my company's, I would own it. And then I could dictate not only how the processes were that we managed our clients, our customers with, but I could also dictate the culture of the organization. And I wanted much more control over that than I had at my last company. Okay. So um, why don't you catch us up on where Revolution Cyber stands today? So where are you in the in the startup journey? Great. Um, well, it's been a long journey and I'm proud to say we have, ju- we will be launching our first platform in January, mm-hmm. 2023. Um, and prior to that, we were just an MSSP that managed the end to end security awareness and culture of organizations backend. So we were the backend operation for security awareness teams. We are now able with our platform to work with organizations who perhaps can't afford that custom approach, but they're more looking to Um, have access to strategy, have access to someone who can help, but also they're looking to broaden what kinds of places in their security teams um, people like us in our company can touch. So we're we're launching it in January. We've had, it's it's mostly um, been uh, bootstrapping. We've had wonderful clients have supported us from the very beginning. And we, uh, the next uh, step is growth. So we've had um, year over year growth uh, and from about 20% growth year over year. Um, we have already a great pipeline of customers and expect to actually go at least 50 to 60% year over year growth uh, between this year and actually uh, Q2 of 2023. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So what has surprised you most about the process? And I, I'll leave it to you. Surprise can be both good and bad <laughs> in startup land. So uh, yeah, what surprised you about the journey? Um, what, how much of the risk I sat with. So it is... It is when you're SVP of sales, although it's a big role, you're sharing the Mm -hmm. risk and the risk is owned by the founders. Um, When you become a founder, you own the risk. Everything is your responsibility. And I found that it is very, in many ways, it would be easy for me to want to duplicate myself, but that's not, that doesn't make sense for a company to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. I've had to learn how to do better about working with navigating, negotiating with people who are much unlike me. Because if you think about it as an entrepreneur, it reveals all of your weaknesses very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so finding people who had different skill sets for mine and building cohesive teams to continue to, so we all can move in the right, the same direction has been, it has been an interesting challenge, but I would say my, my, my team says I'm a much better leader today for it because we've, we've come a long way. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the uh, myth of the entrepreneur, especially in this country, is one of radical self-confidence. I've got this disruptive idea. I'm going to change everything. Uh, I can't believe no one has noticed the obvious, you know, but I also (laughs) think it must be paradoxically equal parts radical humility, right? Because as you say, you jump in 
And then suddenly the things that you're good at are great, but where you have gaps, <laughs> you know, that could be headwind for the, for the startup land. I also find, and at some point later in my life that, the answers are there, but hidden. I mean, the answers are almost right in front of you, but I believe that our world has this way of making you dig for things. I think that the entrepreneurial route should be much smoother, but there are so many places and so much different competing information on what to do and how to do it and where to get funding and how to secure funding and Unless you're really tied in from the beginning and know those places, it's quite difficult to do. Uh, and that's why most startups fail. Like in their first, you know, at least three years is a great run. But first year, uh, most startups fail. So my, my, I've been saying to myself, who do I need to surround myself with? What networks do I need to be, um, you know, sort of connected to? And I keep finding influencers who will pull me into things uh, because I can't be everywhere. And my company, no matter how many people I hire, will need to have people who believe in what we're doing, who are then fielding new opportunities and, and, and telling us what, where the next directions are for our company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah. what is the focus for the next six months versus 12 months? Yes. So you, you've talked about this, you know, lightning growth in this first part of mm -hmm. next year, but... You know, what are yeah. you thinking about at the end yeah. of 2023, if you can think so, out that far? Ooh, think that far. Um, we're, we're likely going to start going into federal government contracting. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a clear space for us. We're doing that now through um, third parties mm -hmm. to the government, so, so subcontractors um, for primes. Um, I think we're also looking to really what we're doing now, our sales technique has really been, we know that people need people. <laughs> so honestly, what we find over and over again, selling a platform is much harder than it is to sell just services. Mm -hmm. um, we are going to make our platform self-enabling. So we want people with as frictionless as possible to be able to learn what we do, trial it, buy it, use it and continue to do that without us right now, because of the fact that we're actually still testing a model and that's the bundling of them too. What Fortress taught me is that there is real value in having a platform that isn't in of itself, but that there are, there are services that are directly attached. We are selling it that way. Now we find that that that's great, but lightning growth continued means that we're able to get the people who are kind of the laggards and they want to, touch, feel, figure it out. They want to purchase without talking to anyone. So that's where we think 12 months from now will be. There'll also be the option to do it without a coach attached to the platform and without the need to speak to anyone um, inside of our company, unless you absolutely have to. Okay. That's really cool. So I want to come back to this value proposition that we started with, which was this security culture. And I think what stood out to me most was the fact that you could tie metrics to it. And one of the things I wrote down here was, you know, if security is embedded in all parts, it becomes cost efficient. And one of those cost efficiencies that I wrote down is you have fewer help desk tickets. I'm intrigued by that, right? Because that's a lot of drag on, on one part, largely the IT part of the organization. But, mm -hmm. you know, that, that friction between um, end users who are all hackers, let's just say it, right? Yes. If you get in the way, they're going to find a way to get the job done because they got to meet deadlines. They got to get their projects done. So I want to give you some space to talk about that, about being able to measure the efficacy of security culture as it relates to, you know, business outcomes. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. So I, I guess if we focus primarily on the service desk, um, typically with the service desk, they're fielding questions from all different parts of the organization. Um, they've got a help desk manager. They've got a ticketing system. And their their job really is to figure out how to more quickly get the tickets into the, the, the queue and then resolved. That's also measured. Um, if If the truth is that culture is very heavily driven by communications, then the more you can embed communications into responses. So for instance, if you think about some of the technologies and everyone, I don't want to mention any mm. in particular and, and advertise any, but if you think about the way those work, um, a lot of times people are going for the slightest of problems. They're going to the help desk ticket, mm. just, I've got this question, but what if in an organization that uses Slack, there's a Slack bot. And every time that question came up, it automatically provided that information to them. Um, and so, and then what it did is it answered the question that comes up most often, most frequently, and then it gave you directions for where an FAQ is to answer even more questions. By the time that person left the FAQ and then got into the help, um, it got to the help desk, their question would be so pointed that they could actually, they actually need the help, but also that person on the back end would be well-trained in those kinds of things because they would get in those more, those questions more frequently. So we can tell when we build a workflow between the end user and then the service help desk, how many times we, how much, how many of those tickets we've been able to reduce by setting a baseline for when we start. Then we can also tell how many times people have gone to the FAQ pages before they've gone back to ask the help desk for more questions. And then we can even tell from end to end, how long did it take for a ticket to be resolved? And we see over time that the way that communication is set up in the organization, and that is surrounding an employee with information that is self-enabling, mm -hmm. that's the goal. They can enable the, the, the way that they answer questions is based on how quickly they themselves can find the answers. We can tell that the, the help desk is getting hit with less questions. The questions that they're getting are advanced and require a person to help them with. And then even the amount of time that they're spending from end to end on the ticketing system is reduced. And there is a cost to that because between the person who has to respond to the question, um, the licensing agreements, sure. right? So you might, you might be able to reduce licensing or the amount of data capture or all that stuff. And then also, we also see um, positive feedback being sent out into the organization. So we also hear security is being talked to, uh, like I needed to help, I'm, I'm a business analyst. I tell my manager, oh, I got this question answered quickly. And what happens is it feeds back in, the manager then tells their manager, it goes to the manager of the IT leader, and it is drilled back down. We're finding that reduction help desk tickets actually increases how much budget is spent in IT departments because you're actually demonstrating value. Oh, wow. You're saving on one end, so they give you expenditure on other mm -hmm. ends, right? So if you're able to save us labor, we don't have to hire that additional help desk person, then we can take that money and use it to something else we can automate, right? So, so that's what is the value of a security culture. And I'm talking IT because most of the questions coming into IT um, um, help desk now are security questions, right? So my AV, I have issues with my AV, or I've clicked on a phishing link, what do I do now? These are easy questions to answer. Why don't we build those in and assume those questions will come? Why don't we, instead of requiring people to come to us, security, to answer them, we communicate those out to the organization. And then why don't we continue to measure and track where the gaps are, where the where the holdups are, where the friction is, and keep trying to, 
to uh, address the friction. And the smoother the operation, it will immediately uh, field other things. So one of the impacts on we've seen on reduction help desk tickets is also on phishing incident reduction. Because what we're also noticing is that the people who are reporting um, to help desk about some phishing link, they're less likely to click on links. But what they do, if you can set up that um, uh, education and learning, you, you start rewarding the people who are reporting. They then, people see them as, you know, doing behavior or, or engaging behavior that they want to mirror or copy. And some of the people who typically don't like, who do click and don't like to be called out for it, some of their behavior starts to change. Mm -hmm. So what you're always doing is pulling out the people who need additional communications, finding spaces in which you can continue to surround them, and then you're reducing how much investment you're making in security culture or security awareness. But the end result is the organization is more productive because people aren't in clunky LMS systems, you know, yep. getting education. They're learning through micro communications. Every time they reach out, there's another bit of learning that they get, but they've asked for it because they did the reach out. So we are very much about automation, operation, optimization across the IT and security stack. Yeah. I mean, that sounds needed more than ever. Let me just let me just uh paint the picture right like the business okay. you keep saying communication and i i cotton to that because yep. the business communications infrastructure has complexified that's a word now tremendously since 2019 and you know this research out from harvard business review found that on average employees switch between applications daily 1200 times right so there's a lot of distraction which is why phishing is on the rise social engineering is on the rise it's that one there's more attack surface right i can reach you on whatsapp i can maybe buy a session cookie for slack and get in through that way i can i can hit you on many different doors but also the workforce is more distracted and i and i i just think I want to come back to this idea of communications and micro communications because there's so much going on that kind of trying to layer, you know, the, the security awareness training I used to have to do on an annual basis. It, it's just one, it's really hard to remember that six months after the fact, because you're only checking in twice a year. And also, I mean, let's be honest, people got two screens. They're running it on one screen. They're trying to get yes. their work done on the other. They're not paying attention. No. They, we have the most distracted, disengaged workforce, um, really in history mm -hmm. and, and decentralized. And this is all by design. It literally, I could tell that the industry, um, made a shift. It started with our media mm -hmm. and how many options we had on TV. And then it became social media. And so if people are walking around and they have opportunities to be, to build small communities, in their day-to-day -day life, why would they be expected in the office to stick to one system and do that all day? Right. That's not how they live their life. What we have to assume is that people will um, continue to be distracted because they're trying to keep up with all the data sources mm -hmm. in which they're getting their data all day. How do we reach them there? And, and, and how does communication need to show up there? Mm -hmm. Right. Because I don't communicate on Twitter the way I communicate on Instagram, the way I communicate on LinkedIn. 
Why do the awareness programs, they look the exact same no matter where you interact with them. That's crazy. Well, and let's also be fair that a lot of it is still training against legacy systems, which is essentially inbound email. But yes. if a heavy load of the workday has shifted into a Slack or a Teams environment, I would argue that most people are not inured to the same level of phishing awareness in those yes. platforms as they may be in inbound email, which we've had for 20 years. We've had that kind of that, that cultural training. But yeah, it's completely different systems. Completely different systems and mindset. So mm -hmm. if you think about the way email works, email's designed, you receive it. I used to want to do zero inbox. Hey, that's just not me. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. But um, I go back to it. So I use my email as a repository. With Slack, it goes up and dis disappears unless mm -hmm. it's pinned in a channel. So if you miss them at that time, you've missed them. Unless you reinforce and you post it again. You also have people in different channels talking about different things in that channel. So security wants to make itself known. It's got to look like something in engineering, look different in the executive mm. channel, look different to the general body of people. And it's got to keep shifting the way it's, it, it's being perceived, it's branding so that people want to connect with it. Yeah. And if that's the goal that we want to build closer, tighter connections and make people engage, it's got to be interesting, well-designed, and it needs to respect people's time. And that's a lot of what security is not doing today. Yeah. I mean, I keep thinking about this, you know, email, the cultural context for email is the original office memorandum, right? I mean, yes. that's why a reply says RE. It was it's oh left God, over yes. from those envelopes where you used to put in the document and you write the next person and same with the CCs and whatever. All of that is like letter writing, right? Yes. Dear Jules, blah, 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 blah. Have this for tomorrow at two. Great. I'm going to hit reply. There's like a certain cadence and rhythm to that. But the way we came to Slack and Teams chat, and I say chat, is like in the shadow of AOL instant messenger, right? It was rapid. It's not really thinking because I got to, if I, if I don't reply, then I look rude, you know, like there's a different cultural expectation. Um, and so again, like the awareness training, if it isn't calibrated to the way you approach that channel, it's, I don't know. I feel like there's a disjuncture there. I, I think that there are so many things that are still what we do that, People, less and less people are doing, but we're unwilling to make the change. I think ultimately, I say this to everybody, the biggest risk inside of corporations is the bureaucracy and the way it's set up. We are mm. dealing with companies that were created hundreds of years ago based on principles that, you know, in, in industrial times. And we're still trying to grow rapidly and become technology companies on the back of what were, mm -hmm. you know, steel companies and, and other things. We have not really thought through what the company of 2023, 2024, and the future should look like. We're just operating based on what's already happened. Brilliant. It is very difficult to secure what we have now. And email is the best reflection of that. It is a dated way in which we communicate. Uh, Gen Z does not read their emails, whether it's in the organization or not. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so if you're doing security awareness programs via email, you've lost people. But also, if you don't keep it short and sweet and you're doing it in these little, little, you know, uh, 10 second nuggets, you're losing people. 10 seconds is even long. Mm -hmm. I think people in Slack, um, they take one to three seconds to read a message and then they move on. Yeah. Okay. Right.
Well, I mean, that's, that seems like a good place to stop, but, uh, I look forward to seeing more of revolution cyber and, uh, Jules, thank you so much for joining today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, George. That's it for First Watch today. Many thanks to my guest, Juliet Ogafor. To hear more interviews with cybersecurity leaders, entrepreneurs, and spotlight episodes with newcomers, subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber with original music by Mattia Cefaletti and production help from Jamil Mafi. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong.